0: Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to adventistmission.org. That's adventistmission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David
1: Trim. And I am Sam Nevis. Thank you for joining us. David, today we're going to be talking about one of the most significant events in our denomination's history. The 1901 reorganization of the church. Yes. Now, for those that understand what happened, it's pretty exciting. But for everyone else, (laughs) it's kind of boring.
0: What happened? So, yes, on the face of it, it, it could sound boring because basically the church restructured Which, you know, be still my beating heart. It's hard not to get excited about that, right? But the key thing is the church didn't just reorganize because it wanted to achieve a more perfect organizational model. They weren't going to business schools, which didn't exist at the time anyway, and saying, what's the perfect organizational chart look like? They realized that they had a problem, that the organization that they had set up with in 1863, which worked for a church that was almost entirely in the Midwest of the United States, no longer worked for a church that was already uh, had had an organized presence on several continents, and which aspired to have a large presence on every inhabited continent.
1: My, my immediate response to this is, they did not wait to reorganize the church in seventy four when they sent the missionaries, the first missionary. Yes. So sometimes we have to see all the different possibilities, yep. and until the project can see all of it, we don't start. They didn't have that approach the next step is to send mission, a missionary out okay good then in the next 20 years they try their best to use the structure that they had set in 63 to match it but it was not successful no no once
0: at first but but once they start to spread and you get vast distances and you get you get adventism growing in regions around the world when it's just switzerland okay, you can you can work with that. But once you've actually got a presence in South Africa and then in Australia, but different states of Australia and different countries of Europe, once you have a significant presence in Switzerland and then it spreads to Germany and it's in Scandinavia and it's in Britain, there's a need to have some kind of regional organization. But instead, they still have everybody, every organized conference. And they all start to organize them. And by 1901, they have organized conferences in Europe. Africa and Australia. Um, They have missionaries present in other continents or other parts of the uh, regions of the world, but that's where they have organized conferences. But they all have to refer back to Battle Creek. And this is in an era when, and we we touched on this in the last episode, it could take months to send a a request for instructions or advice and to get a reply.
1: There were two main problems that we discussed in the last episode. You just mentioned one of them. The other is that the different legal entities they cre- they created yes. were duplicating services. No one quite knew exactly where to go for what, and they were also um, competing with each other. Therefore, uh, yes. and it was ineffective.
0: Right. The church had, and it, the church had evolved a a system of organization. Which, if you'd said to them in eighteen sixty three this is where you're going to be in 1901, they wouldn't have chosen that model, but of course they didn't know. They didn't know how the future was going to unfold. Uh, They knew how prophetic time was going to unfold, but they didn't know how their history was going to unfold. And so this structure just evolved by which you have independent societies and associations, which were actually separate legal corporations, requiring their own boards, their own annual general meetings. And just to make it even more complicated, the International Tract and Missionary Society had its own member societies. There were missionary, tract and missionary societies or tract societies in most Adventist states, but those were legally separate from the conference in which they operated. The Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association, which pushed forwards the health work, again, there were separate Medical Missionary and Benevolent Associations in many American states, as well as in Australia and in other parts of the world. So it, it wasn't just at the top level, but at every level you had this bifurcation, this duplication of resources, um, and an inability to coordinate and act really collaboratively. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't impossible because many of the same people sat on the boards of these different institutions and these different associations and societies and so forth. But still, nevertheless, you did have separate teams And they all had to relate to their component entities, the the member associations or member societies. I mean, it's just a, a, a model of organization that is hopelessly complex for such a small movement.
1: At some point, just like individuals realize, I'm in a crisis, I need to change, organizations do not change unless they face some kind of crisis. And as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, they realize, hold on a minute, we have this mission. But what got us here will most certainly not get us there. And then they decided, okay, it's time to do that.
0: That's the realization. And it begins to set in in the 1890s. And as we touched on in the last episode, the 1890s sees mission expansion stall. Uh, The growth that had been very steady begins to decline. Taper off. To taper off, yes. The church continued to grow. It didn't shrink. But people could see the the growing pain. People could feel the growing pains and see the problems. Um, And so in the early 1890s, the Australian conferences, because Australia has followed the model of America and has a separate conference for each state or each separate colony because uh, then Australia hadn't become an independent nation, what became the states of Australia in 1900 were all separate colonies of Great Britain. But they... they they understood that these were like American states, and so they followed the model. But actually that made sense, because Australia is a vast country. You couldn't have just had one Australian conference. It's too large. And so then you've got the need, um, as Arthur Daniels and Willie White and Ellen White, who was in Australia in the 1890s, all identify, sometimes we need Australian answers to Australian problems, and we can't refer things back to battle creek in michigan on the other side of the pacific ocean
1: they still think like that today which is why <laughs> they can innovate so much
0: <laughs> yes no that's 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 true uh and so they formed the first union conference and then in the late 1890s the europeans say here's a good model we're in the same situation we've now got separate conferences across europe and we need a european solution and ellen white had actually even foreshadowed that when she was in Europe for two years in the mid-1880s. She attended a meeting of what was called the European Mission Council and said, yes, this is a good model, but nothing was done to embed it in the organization until after the 1897 General Conference session. And so they formed the European Union Conference. But nowhere else forms unions. So you've still got conferences having to relate directly to the General Conference with no intervening level uh, one church leader actually says, we need something more in the lev- in the way of organization. Today, if you were to say that, most people would say, no, we don't want more organization, we don't want more bureaucracy. But the aim wasn't to, cre- again, the aim wasn't to create some kind of notionally perfect organizational structure. It was to create something that was fit for purpose, and that enabled people to be nimble and agile, not wait for weeks or months to he- get a response from America. So, Uh, You get these two union conferences formed, but nowhere else. Uh, And in the meantime, people are seeing the problems. People are seeing that the church is no longer growing as fast. And the church is having all kinds of financial problems, partly because members have lost confidence in the organized church. They're not being as generous. Um, And also you have a very, very small executive committee. It had a membership of nine. So if you can imagine nine people deciding the fate of the world church, and because often they were traveling, you could have an executive committee of five.
1: And I had no idea.
0: And, and so in effect, what you have is a cabal, not a, not a real committee. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and and, and this, is, this is why Ellen White writes about the General Conference being an example of what she calls kingly power. It's a, it's a, it's a, she a, writes around that time? Exactly. That's what she's referring to. I see. And this is often misunderstood, and people will still say, you know, just quote her out of context and apply it to the general conference today, when we have an executive committee of over 300 with representatives from every part of the world.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm used to now. Our right. executive committee is is vast, and, in, and if you want to get anything done, you need to talk to a lot of people before it happens.
0: Right. It's like a parliament.
1: But back not then, a, that's right. Five... People.
0: But you, if you can imagine five people, and they tended to be the general conference president and his, for want of a better word, cronies. People, and to be, you know, the general conference president, who was Ola Olsen up to 1897, and then George Irwin from 1897 to 1901. To be fair, they're not just power-hungry people. They're wanting to do the right thing by the mission of the church. Sure. But they also believe, because this is the way things have been done, they believe this is the Adventist way to do things and that you can't change without ceasing to be Adventist. And Sam, we've got to step back for a moment. We can return to the 120 years ago in a moment. But that's still a problem for the church today. That attitude that says there's an Adventist way of doing things and we have to do it in that way without ever thinking, well, just a minute, if we were starting this for the first time today, is this the way we do things? And, you know, I'm not talking about theology here. I'm not talking about theological change. Uh, the church has its 28 fundamentals, and really those have been in place for well, much longer than the 43 years since they were voted at 1980. Mm-hmm. Those those beliefs have been very stable. We're not talking about beliefs. We're talking about the administrative ways and processes and procedures you have. And But there's still that attitude, oh, this is the way we've always done it. So this must be the Adventist way to do things. And therefore, if we change, we're not going to be Adventist anymore. That's kind of the unspoken, maybe even unconscious fear that people have. But it, it does stand in the way sometimes of reforms that could be helpful for the church.
1: In fact, the, the very word new and reform, you know, sends people out in allergies that yeah. they start scratching <laughs> themselves. Um, what fascinates me is it, there is a, a mantra of innovation which is you need to fall in love with the problem not with your solution. Yeah. And the problem is how can we organize ourselves to fulfill the mission God has given us?
0: Yes. In 19
1: in 1863 it was one structure that was needed. Right. And that helped to establish the sending off uh Absolutely. the missionary. If we did not have if we had not done this, the restructuring of 63 or let's say the structuring of 63, yes. we would not end up in 74 sending the first missionary. Absolutely. And if we had not done the restructuring in 1901, we would not have had the mission expansion, explosion even, right. of the early 20th century. And
0: it is an explosion. It, it, it really ushers in, 1901 ushers in a golden age of Adventist mission. When the numbers of missionaries greatly increase, church members increase the amount of t- offerings and tith- that they're giving and tithes that they're returning because they have confidence that the church is focused on the mission. So and we'll we'll talk more about that in in subsequent in in this episode and subsequent episodes. But to, just to to spoiler alert, it works. <laughs> it works really really well. But uh, but you do have the the problem in the late eighteen nineties that first Olson and then Irwin feel well this is the way things are done. So we've got to keep doing it this way. And then they naturally turn to people they trust. And so you do get this tiny. As I say, the full membership of the executive committee is nine and you rarely get that being present. So you've got just literally a handful of people making decisions for the whole world church. And this is when Ellen White says, no, this is you've concentrated too much power in too few hands. And there is wisdom in the counsel of many, as Proverbs says.
1: So let's paint a picture of, of what's going on in Ellen White's life at this moment, right? Because she is not a spring chicken anymore <laughs> no far she she is now uh, approaching 80 or around 80 toward that in my Late estimation 70s, yeah. right so you don't have it's very rare to have an innovator or someone willing to change you don't pick up new habits when you're old but she's old
0: yes early i misspoke she's early but she's past 70 by by this by this time so she's she's she sh- she should how be sitting
1: how old was she when she way. died in 15
0: Uh, So she was in her mid-80s.
1: Oh, she was in her mid-80s in 15. Okay, so she's 70-something. Yes. Same difference. And now, and to make matters worse, she was involved in the original structuring.
0: Yes. Her
1: husband was involved in the original structuring. Her
0: husband was absolutely crucial in the original structuring.
1: She had every reason to say, this is the Adventist way. God has revealed that it should be this way, and we're not changing.
0: Absolutely, 100%.
1: But that's not what happens.
0: No. Indeed, Ellen White is one of the people who is pushing for change. Initially from Australia, where she is from 1891 to 1900, she and her son W.C. White or Willie White is is usually known. William was his first name, but everybody called him Willie or, or W.C. in that way that they had of only knowing people through their first initials. <laughs> um, So Ellen and Willie White are both in Australia and she is writing and saying, no, there needs to be a change. We've got to get away from this kingly power. We need to have more people involved in making the decisions because then you've got a representative body. How how important
1: was it that she was not in Butter Creek when writing this? Because she was feeling the pain in the mission field.
0: Exactly. And I think that's the key. So when, when Daniels writes later how it took forever to reach decisions, He's remembering it, but he was there. He experienced it, and she experienced it. She knew very well that it would take weeks, or literally months, maybe even more than half a year, to get a decision back. Uh, and then the the question was, who's taken the decision? Is this the best decision from people who actually have never been to Australia
1: and don't know the context?
0: Don't know the con- have got no sense of what's going on. Um, so she's there. She sees the problems, and she's aware we need a different level of structure but also we need to have a more streamlined structure in in the way by not having all these independent associations and societies overlapping and and even competing with each other.
1: So the tension is we need more centralization because streamlining something requires a level of centralization, but in a way that uh, creates autonomy for those fields. So those are two different principles. We need maximum autonomy as much as possible, and we need maximum uh, uh, streamlining, which requires centralization.
0: Yes, it's it's interesting. Those two principles seem to be at odds with each other, and yet the church works out a modus vivendi that allows it to have both.
1: So, 1901 comes. It's a general conference session. Irwin, the current president, does not want any of this particular. It doesn't want that to change because he's quite happy to be one of the five. Yes, yes, he is. That <laughs> <laughs> makes the decisions. Um, he does not continue thereafter, so clearly there was a restructuring. How many people came to general conference sessions? How often did they happen? And do we have any indication for what it was like coming into that general conference session?
0: That's a great question, and I don't remember the number of delegates by this time, but it would have been approaching a 100, I think.
1: So we don't have thousands.
0: No, 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 no. I mean, it's it's more than the fifteen or twenty who would come to the early general conference sessions. Though we know that there were, we know that the sessions were witnessed, and f- they were very often held in Battle Creek, and we know church members in Battle Creek were looking on. Um, but still, the the actual session representatives are, are very few in number. By the end of the century, it's it's getting up. But it's, it's certainly nothing like we're talking about today.
1: And is it annual, biannual? It's, by
0: that stage, it's biannual. It's, okay. So it's every other year. It had been every year up until 1889, and then it's every other year. And then after 1905, they switched to every four years. Mm. Uh, because the church is getting bigger, and it's more... You know, what, When all you have to do is have everybody get on the train and come to Battle Creek, and it takes them a day or two... It's not a problem to meet every year. In fact, they also have several what they call special sessions, which are in between. Um, because it's easy. Once the church has spread to Europe and then especially to Africa and Australia, it's that's getting more challenging. So uh, that's why they switch to every four years. But at this point, it's every other year. What we know is that many of the delegates arrive wanting to see a change, because we know... That one of them writes later, after 1897, everyone was encouraged and thought, the next GC session, we're going to see some reform. And then 1899 comes and it starts us. The forces of conservatism and reaction say, no, we'll just keep everything the same. So. How
1: is the review at that time creating uh, th- um, this discussion? Do we have articles that present both points of view or.
0: We don't, but they do we pu- know? they publish the full transcripts of general conference sessions in the review, not today where they're where they're redacted, and you get a, a summary, as it were. Um, they publish the full transcript. And so people were aware that there were different points of view. People who read the review, and at this stage, the review was still being subscribed to by a fairly significant portion of the of the membership of the church it's in North America. What kept us together in many ways. Maybe. Yeah, it, that was still that was particularly true early on, but it's still the case in at the end of the century. Um, so people who are reading it are getting the sense: wait, there's more points of view out here, they're, and pe- they're reading people calling for change and calling for reform. Um, so there, there was a freedom of discussion, and we we know that people arrive thinking, well, we were frustrated last time. There's even you know we need these reforms even more now, and the key thing is Ellen White is present. She'd come back to from from Australia to the United States in 1900, and so she attends the 1901 General Conference session, and she gives a worship talk. To the assembled leaders the evening before the session opens. And basically, it's a mandate for change. <laughs> and she, basically, I, she. I can it, only
1: imagine what it was like to have Ellen White in a session <laughs> <laughs> preaching a sermon before it starts.
0: Well, and we have a great photo that some of our listeners and viewers will, will know of Ellen White speaking at the 1901 session, which was in the Dime Tabernacle in Battle Creek. And on the video version, we'll put that photograph up of an actual photo of Ellen White speaking with leaders on, at the pulpit with leaders on the platform behind her. It's not wow. of this particular talk. But what she says...
1: Where, where is it, uh, the session?
0: It's in Battle Creek.
1: In it's Battle- in Battle Creek. Okay.
0: And what she actually says... Is the, is, I mean, the whole thing is a mandate for change. It's not one of her most chastising um, addresses. There are times, you know, she really tears people off a strip. But nevertheless, it's pretty full on. And she actually says, now there must be a change with the General Conference right here in its sitting. We want to know what can be done right here, what can be done right now.
1: Hmm. She doesn't give the answers as to what needs to be done. No, no But it's clear that something must be done.
0: Yes. And I mean, people often think see Ellen White as being, you know, this very nineteenth century lady, but that could be somebody talking today. Yeah. We need absolutely. change right here, right, right now. now. <laughs> yeah. And so, but you're right. She doesn't say, I have a list of requirements. Because she hasn't been given a vision by by God about this. She knows things need to change. But she also she practices what she preaches. There's a representative body here. Let the representative body make the decisions because there is wisdom in the council of many.
1: And God did not reveal it because the struggle was part of was important.
0: Yes, for people uh, to realize what yeah. was necessary. So Ellen White doesn't say these are all the things you have to do in detail. But what she does say is you have to make changes right here. What can be done right here? What can be done right now? And so people are in no doubt that something has to change. And so the next morning, when they convene the session, they actually agree to suspend the normal business and to reconvene as a committee of the whole. Now, this is a this is an ancient parliamentary technique. Uh, it was used in the British Parliament. I think it's used at times in the U.S. Congress, but it was certainly used in the British Parliament, by which you can, instead of being the general session, the general meeting, which means you're bound by certain procedures you have to follow. Instead, you say, no, we're creating a committee to look at this, but it's a committee made up of every a delegate to the general conference session. So they form themselves as a committee of the whole, which means they can then, they're free to ignore the agenda, they're free to do what, to range very wide. They're going to
1: brainstorming, essentially.
0: Yes. We have this problem. Let's go. And they elect Arthur Daniels as the chair. Now, Daniels at this stage is only 43. He's been a missionary to New Zealand and Australia. He's been in Australia in the 1890s. He's worked with Ellen and Willie White. Um, He is, you know, Ellen White has been his mentor, really. He is her protege, which probably helps. uh, But at the time, he wasn't expecting this. He was coming back on furlough for leave after having spent nearly 10 years in a foreign country. And he's rather surprised, but he has made... This is the other thing. If you can constitute yourselves as a committee, you can elect your own chairman. You're not bound by who the chairman of the session would normally be, who would be the president or one of his associates. Was there resistance to this by...? There doesn't seem to have been. And again, we have the the full proceedings. Nobody says no. That shows a a great
1: level of humility in a way, because it's like, okay, we need to change. Uh, well,
0: I think this is why it, it, it's important what Ellen White had said. The night before. Yeah. And so, but there's no sign that Irwin says, just a minute, know that Owen fights tooth and nail to, to hold no. on to his position. It's he accepts that. Excellent. V- as well. Uh, he accepts that what Ellen White has said is, is right. And he's aware of, I'm sure he must be aware of the uh, the feeling in favor of change. So they form themselves as a committee of the whole, they elect Daniels as chair, and then they move into saying, right, what needs to be done? And so you get this series of sweeping reforms that could never have been made if they'd followed the normal procedures. Um, But again, it helps that Ellen White is there, and Ellen White speaks at various times through the session. She's not just there, she actually does speak, and that's why we have the photograph of her speaking from the pulpit in in the Dime Tabernacle. So What do they do? They say that unions should be founded everywhere. And so in America, it's interesting actually, all the unions that exist today can trace their origins back to 1901. Because what happens is, during the the breaks, during the, the general conference session, the different groups go and caucus together, and so the ones from the South form the Southern Union Conference. The ones from the West Coast form the Pacific Union Conference, the ones from the northern Midwest states form the Northern Union Conference, and so on and so forth. And so actually, they all get formed during this meeting at Battle Creek. So when they say that the Union Conference model should be followed everywhere, people immediately follow through on it and do what they say. They create Union Conferences. So by the end of it. There are, except except for, for mission fields, where there's only, say, one mission, like India, where you've just got the India mission, Every or, everywhere there are conferences have been formed into union conferences. And that's important for reasons we'll come back to in future episodes. Well,
1: let's see how this shift has impacted us. But most importantly, in the next episode, we'll explore the differences between the 1901 restructuring and how that materialized in 1903. Because it took a few years
0: right. for so us next, to get there. E- exactly. So, But they, they create unions, which means there's the intervening level of, of, of structure. Um, and the key thing is, for our listeners who don't understand, a union isn't just a grouping of conferences. It actually has a what's called a constituency, which is a group of members. So from 1863 to 1901, who were the members of the general conference? Conferences. They were the conferences. From 1901, the members of the General Conference are the unions. unions. But each union has its own members who are the conferences. So there is what's called a constituency. There's a natural um, membership who is responsible for electing people. So it's not just that somebody up top has said, right, we're going to group you into this this union. No, it's an organic body that has representation. And so the leaders they elect are going to reflect the desires and the uh, the dynamics of their member conferences and, the, in turn, the ch- members of the local churches who are the members of the, the local conferences. The other thing they do, though, of course, is to create departments. They abolish most of the societies and associations, not all, and they convert them into departments. So creating the union conferences achieves the goal of as much autonomy as possible, to use the term you used earlier. The centralization part, which is, again, how can you have these two at the same time, is to say no, there will be a it. department, and these departments will be at every level of the church. So it it means somebody at the conference level who works in literature evangelism has somebody they can relate to at the union level who in turn will have somebody he or she can relate to at the general conference. And these counterparts are meant to
1: work together exactly for maximum efficiency and mission.
0: Exactly. But they are no longer separate, independent corporations. Uh, They are actually now departments of the church, and so there is a degree of oversight by the president and the officers, the three officers. The one exception to this was the Foreign Mission Board. And as we touched on last time, the Foreign Mission Board was not uh, was not just a mission board. It was actually a separate legal corporation, which is kind of bewildering to me, Sam. You know, why would they do that? Uh, it's because they're following the model of all the separate associations and societies. I see. Okay. But, so as we touched on last time, the Foreign Mission Board is almost, in some ways, in competition with the General Conference. Hmm. And there's no clear dividing line. There's no clear demarcation. The Foreign Mission Board is responsible for work in some mission areas, but not others. Uh, there's a huge amount of confusion and a tendency for people to say, well, the other group will do it." it. Is that board, fixed in 1901 as well? It was not fixed in 1901. Huh. Because, and there are the, Daniels actually suggests at one point, we don't need to have multiple boards and committees. We could just have one, the General Conference Committee. But... People are at that point a little reluctant. They want to take their time. They want to think through the implications. That would be my interpretation because there's, there's no follow through on that. But on the others, there is. And so now you've got both the devolution of power downward and the concentration of authority in the executive and administrative structure via the departments. So they've managed to achieve the combination of those two principles, which seem to be at odds with each other. Praise the Lord. Well, let's pick up on the next episode, what happened
1: in 1903 and how those two years of exploration had an effect. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about the Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's adventismission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.